Well, hey, I'm excited to have the privilege to be with you all this morning. As you know, we're going through a series on parables this summer, and Pastor Roger asked Brad and Brett and I to tag team that with him, and it's an honor today uh, to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. If you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. I'll say it one more time, Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. We've shared from several parables from this great chapter. Uh, today, I have the privilege of sharing with you another parable that Jesus shared here from Matthew chapter 13 about the wheat and the tear. Now, that doesn't appear until verse 24, but I want to ask you to start in verse 1. I want to give you the setting of where we find Jesus. I want to ask you to also keep your Bible handy because we're going to stay completely within chapter 13 today of, of uh, Matthew, but uh, we're going to look at several different verses, so keep your Bible uh, handy as we look through this great text. Here in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of wheat and the tear, Jesus shares a very stern warning about Christian lookalikes. Christian lookalikes. Now, I, I, my you know, opportunity here today is not to bring doubt or not to bring discouragement or not to bring confusion to anybody's mind. I'm convinced that Jesus shared this incredible parable because he wanted, he loved people so much, he wanted them to make sure they knew what it took by God's requirement for them to be accepted by him and know they had purpose and peace and sins forgiven and a home in heaven one day. So I want you to know that perhaps there's no greater time and no greater culture to preach this text in the last few decades in North America. The reason why I say that is there are a lot of different views and ideas of what it takes to be a Christian. What does it mean for someone to be a Christian? And a lot of people still, probably the majority, like I did for 17 years of my life, really out of a hopefully a good heart, felt like that surely, surely, surely there was something that I had to do to gain God's love. There were some good works that had to be in there. There was some church membership and that had to be in there, a baptism that had to be in there. And, uh, and I'm just telling you, I still believe that the majority of people in North America believe that it has more to do with religion and we're really missing the truth of it being everything to do with a relationship with Christ. Now, I'm not throwing stones. I'm not saying those people are not brilliant because I want you to know it just makes sense humanistically, doesn't it? You just can't get something this incredible, a home in heaven and peace here on earth, uh, without do, you know, you, surely we've got to have something. We've got to have some skin in the game as far as a list of checks, boxes that we've checked off in some religious way. There's a lot of people that think it was their baptism at birth. There's a lot of people that think it's their confirmation at age 12. There's a lot of people that think it was the warm fuzzies in a Baptist church or being baptized in our church or another denomination. But I want you to know, Jesus is clearly saying that there's only one way to heaven, and he knows that there are a lot of people, and maybe even out of a good heart, trying to do some stuff that causes them to be a look-alike, but not really a full-on follower of Jesus Christ because they haven't surrendered to the free gift of Jesus. So we're going to begin reading here in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1, just to give you the setting of where we find Jesus on this day, okay? And this is what it says. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into the boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then Jesus spoke many things to them in parables. Let's pray together. Father, I just say thank you, thank you, thank you for you being the one in charge today. Because God, I said it in the early service, I'll say it in the next service, because I desperately need you. I say it right now. I don't have the goods to, to, to deliver this message in any kind of clarity. My greatest fear this morning is I'm going to throw mud in the water of this text. And Lord, this text is all about the simplicity of embracing you and knowing that we truly counted you and you only as our way to heaven. So 
So, Father, we'll promise you we'll give you the credit. And God, we thank you that today we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to make clear these words, that every listener would hear it clearly. Lord, I love you. Thank you for this inerrant uh, Bible. And Lord, we just ask all these things in the strong name of our King Jesus. Amen. Well, here we are reading again, or just kind of clarifying a little bit of what I read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. Here's the setting that we find Jesus in. The Bible says he left the house, and he goes out to the seashore, and he's sitting there, and a great multitude of people gather around him. It could have been hundreds of people. And the way I picture it is, they begin to kind of press him back toward the water. So what he did was he called out to somebody and said, Hey, bud, can I borrow your boat? The guy said, Sure, why not? And Jesus jumped in the boat, rode 10 or 15 feet offshore, dropped anchor, and there from that boat he sat, maybe even stood a few times, but mostly probably sat, and he shared parable after parable after parable. Now, we've talked about it uh, multiple weeks. A parable is nothing more, or it really is a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's the most common definition. It's where Jesus was the master at painting this word picture of a very common uh, you know, earthly experience that people could wrap their mind around, but he always had a spiritual truth tied to it. And usually what Jesus would do whenever he would share these parables is he would, he would always tie in that spiritual knot at the end. He would give the earthly story, but then he would say, here's the spiritual truth, pointing them to a relationship with him, pointing them to multiple other spiritual things that he wanted them to be able to comprehend from that. But on this day, Jesus did something unusual. He did it on purpose, of course. It wasn't by accident. He's God. But I tell you what he decided to do. He shared only the earthly story. He did not share any of the spiritual truth. He didn't tie the knot at the end of each parable. He would go right from one earthly story to the next white from one earthly story to the following one and he did that all day long now just to confirm that we see where I read a moment ago in verse 3 then Jesus spoke to them in parables look in verse 18 it says therefore hear the parable of the sower verse 24 another parable Jesus put forth to them saying verse 31 another parable he put forth to them saying verse 33 another parable Jesus spoke to them and in verse 34 it says all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables and without a parable he did not speak to them. Everything he shared was earthly story after earthly story after earthly story. Even the disciples thought that was odd because in verse 10 it says, And the disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? Even they're saying, Jesus, what's up? Why just the earthly side of it instead of the spiritual side of it? Now I think Jesus already answered that in verse 9 because he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We made reference to that a couple times this summer. Jesus sitting in the boat made this unique statement, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now what do you think Jesus meant? Was he sitting in the boat looking over those hundreds of faces and he noticed that many of them had these little fleshly globs on the side that we call ears and the rest of them just had slick spots. And so Jesus said, hey, remember to put some ears on some of you, forgot on others, need to talk to dad about that one, sorry about that. But for those of you who we remember to create with ears, listen up. That's not what he's saying, right? But what he's saying is this. Jesus knew that there were people there for multiple reasons. Some were there because they passionately loved Jesus and they could not wait to hear the next word that flowed from his lips. Others were there that had equal passion, but they hated him. They couldn't stand him. They wanted to trip him up, trick him, wanted to try to make his, his ministry look like it was null and void, no good at all. There was another group, I'm sure, there, though, that was kind of in it for the free entertainment. Jesus was always doing some great miracle, I mean, incredible things happening. They were kind of in it for the freak show in their mind. They couldn't wait to see what he was going to do next so they could run to their friends and go, you won't believe what I just saw. 
There are others probably there because every once in a while the scripture records where Jesus would feed the multitudes that followed him. And maybe they were just there to see what they could get from Jesus. It was all about them and not about him at all. For whatever reason, a lot of different reasons. And I want to tell you there's a lot of different reasons why people gather around Jesus today. And Jesus, I believe, loved that crowd so much and loves our crowd today because this is a timeless book so much that he said, I'm begging you, listen to me closely. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because if you listen with everything you've got and you listen with your spiritual ears, you're going to get what I have to say today. And I want to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. One of my greatest fears is some of this stuff's going to go over somebody's head. And it's not because you're less than brilliant. You are brilliant. Everything I'm going to say this morning is going to be simple, and that's the only way my brain knows how to communicate. But I wonder right now, for right where we are, right here in this place, our Gerald campus that's with us this morning that we're welcoming by live stream, so many others that are listening by live stream as well, I wonder right now if you would just say, okay, God, if you have something to say, I want to hear it. I wonder if you'd whisper that prayer to him right now. I don't want to miss out on anything that you have to say this morning from your word. You might be listening by live stream, maybe in this building, maybe at the Gerald campus, and you might say, I don't really even know if I bought into this whole Jesus thing. I'm really not even sure there's a God out there. Maybe you just whisper this, God, if you even exist, prove yourself. If you really exist, I want to know, and if you exist, I want to hear. If you've got something to say, I want to hear it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That brings us to verse 24. This is the main focus this morning. It's the parable about halfway through the day where Jesus shares the parable of the wheat and the tare. Listen to what it says. Another parable Jesus put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, Do you want us to go then and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you'll uproot some of the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will say to my reapers, First gather together the tares, bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now there's the earthly story. It was an agrarian culture, a lot of farmers standing out on that beach. I'll guarantee you they comprehended that earthly story very well. The earthly story was this. Jesus said once there was an owner of a field and he planted good seed in his field. Later on we find out that it's wheat. So he planted wheat in his field. He went to sleep that night and an enemy came and oversowed his crop with something that's called tare. In the modern day we call it darnel. It's a wheat look-alike. I'm telling you, the most trained eye, whenever the wheat begins to first sprout, and it's that unique little green color, you cannot tell the difference between wheat and tare. They are exactly a duplicate in the way they look until they begin to bear fruit. Once they begin to reach maturity, suddenly a seed head begins to develop on the wheat, but on the tare there's nothing at all because it's nothing more than a weed. And so why would somebody do this? Well, if you wanted a sure way to ruin your, your enemy, take out their financial, knock their feet out from underneath them financially, ruin their crop. As a matter of fact, it, it happened uh, uh, pretty often back in those days. So Jesus shares this story. He said there was an owner. He had a field. He sows wheat in his field. Uh, enemy came while he slept and oversowed it with tear. And then whenever it, became to, it came to maturity, 
the farmhands came over to this owner and said, hey, didn't you sow wheat in your field? How then does it have tear? And he put two and two together and said, an enemy has done this. And he said, okay. They said, do you want us to go and pull up the tear right now? And the owner said, no, lest while you pull up the tear, you'll uproot some of the wheat with it. Let them both grow together until the harvest time. And at the harvest time, I will say to my reapers, go in first, grab the tear first, bind them in bundles and burn them, take the wheat into my barn. That was a simple story. They all said, we get that one. Some had probably had that done before to them. Others might have done it to an enemy before. Whatever reason, they comprehended the earthly story. He jets on to the next story. But the thing that's so incredibly cool about this story of the day is later on at the end of the day, whenever they're back in the house, the disciples come to Jesus and say, okay, will you explain that story to us, the one you shared about the tares of the field? Let's fast forward now to verse 36. We're still in chapter 13. Verse 36, it says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parables of the tares of the field. So Jesus, at the end of the day, sends the multitudes away, pulls up anchor, rows the boat ashore, says to the guy, thanks so much, you bet. He walks into the house, it's Jesus and the 12 disciples, and I'm reading between the lines here, they come up to him and say something like this. Great day, incredible stories, loved them all, but there was one story you shared about midday that really intrigued us. We've been talking about it all afternoon. Would you explain to us the spiritual side? What did that story mean of the tares of the field? And what Jesus began to do in verse 37 is give them the answer key. Now, Brenda, in a moment, is going to help me with this PowerPoint. And, Brenda, I'll let you know when the first one goes up, and I appreciate you doing this so much. But I want you to know that Jesus simply breaks the code. Again, a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual truth. So there's a lot of analogy in it. And so Jesus said to the disciples, I'm going to share with you every character and everything in the story, and I'm going to tell you, uh, what that represents on the spiritual side, who that represents and what that represents on the spiritual side. So he's simply given them the answer key in verse 37. And I'm going to unpack this for a little bit before, before Brenda puts the first one up. But here's what it says in verse 37. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now let's think about that for a moment. He who sows the good seed, was that the owner or the enemy? Who sowed the wheat? The owner. So the owner would equal the son of man. Who is the son of man? Every time the son of man, those words appear in the New Testament except one, it's Jesus speaking of himself. It also ties him into the Old Testament prophecy. I believe it's found in Daniel 7, 13 that says the son of man will be seen coming in the clouds. Without a doubt, bar none, the son of man is Jesus. So he who sowed the good seed is the owner, and he equals the son of man, which is Jesus. So Brenda, if we could put the first slide up, the owner equals Jesus. Are you tracking with me? Okay, you see what we're doing? He's just breaking the code for the disciples and for you and me today, okay? So let's move on. Here we are in verse 38. The field is the world. That's self-explanatory, isn't it? So let's see the second slide, Brenda the field equals the world, okay? So owner equals Jesus, field equals the world. Now, before we go any further, who owns this world? Jesus. I'm telling you, he's not freaking out. He's not pacing the throne room of heaven, wringing his hands. We've got the opportunity, even in these crazy days, to just keep doing what we're to do as his children, and that's hang on to the owner. There's some other things he'll lead us to do in the process of that. But the key thing is understanding, first and foremost, who owns this place. And it's Jesus. Anyhow, that's a side note. Actually, that's never a side note. But anyhow, you get what I'm saying, all right? So here we go. Verse 38, the field is the world. And I'm going to unpack this next one a little bit before Brenda puts it up. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Now, what were the good seeds? The wheat or the tare? 
the wheat. So the wheat would equal the sons of the kingdom. Who are the sons of the kingdom? The Bible says in John 1.12 that whenever we do a full-on embrace of Jesus, when we surrender to him and we realize he's our only way out of here, that God gives us a right to become children of God. That fries my mind. He gives us the right to become his children. The sons of the, of the kingdom are Christians. Those that have truly, authentically embraced the gospel. So, he who sows the good seed, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, the good seed, which is the wheat, equals the Christians. So, Brenda, if we can put that up. So, we have owner equals Jesus, field equals the world, wheat equals Christians. Now, we're still in verse 38. The, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. No, we're not there yet. I'm sorry, we're in verse 38. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Now, let me talk about that for a moment. If the sons of the kingdom are the Christians, then who are the sons of the wicked one? It would be the non-Christians. Now, you may say just a second. Now, hit the brakes here. Are you telling me that anyone that's not a Christian is a son of the wicked one? I mean, the son of the devil? Well, here's what this is speaking to. It's speaking to the soul of men and women, boys and girls. You see, our soul, our most prized possession, the part of us that will live forever and ever and ever, is owned by either one of two beings, either God because of our relationship with Jesus, or it still belongs to the devil. There's no gray area. There's no time that we own our soul ourselves. It always belongs to either God, or once we make that relationship with Christ, it belongs to God, but until we do that, it belongs to the wicked one. It belongs to the devil. Now, I need you to hear this. I know some people who are not followers of Jesus, they're not Christians, that are good people. Now, all of us have sin in our life. All of us do. Uh, the least of my sin is so drastically different from how good and clean and pure God is. I understand. Sin separates us from God. It's going to take something a lot bigger than my best effort to build that bridge for me to have that relationship with God. I need to be rescued. We're going to talk about that here in a moment, as we all do. But just because people aren't Christians don't mean that they don't still have good morals, I know some people that are hard workers and in many ways live better than some profession Christians. So I'm not saying that everybody that's not a follower of Jesus is wicked and terrible, but it's, a, it's an issue of the soul. Our soul either belongs to God or it still belongs to the wicked one. So the tares equal the non-Christians. So then we move to verse 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. That's self-explanatory, Brenda, if you'll put that in. The enemy equals the devil, okay? The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of time, or the end of age, or the end of time, Brenda, if you can put that up. And the reapers are the angels. I'm going to read that verse again so you can see it on the screen again. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of time, and the reapers are the angels. So here's what Jesus did. He gave them the answer key. He said, listen... Whenever I talked about the owner in that story, it represented me. Whenever I talked about the field, it was the world. Whenever I said wheat, it was Christians. Whenever I said tear, it was non-Christians. Whenever I said enemy, it was the devil. Whenever I said harvest, it was the end of time. Whenever I said reapers, it was the angels. So here's what I want to do. I want to go back to that story in verse 24, as we read it a little bit ago, as Jesus shared it from the boat, and we're going to, we're going to break the code. We're going to insert the answer key. So if my brain will allow me, whenever we read this story a second time, every time I see the words, owner, fill, wheat, tear, enemy, harvest, reapers appear, I'm going to insert Jesus, world, Christians, non-Christians, devil, end of time, angels. Are you tracking with me? Okay. 
We'll just, we'll just get put the answer key in place. So here we go. Let's go back to verse 24. We read it once already, but I'm going to read it with the answer key. Another parable Jesus put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like Jesus who sowed Christians in his world. But while men slept, the devil came and sowed non-Christians and went his way. But when the, when the Christians had sprouted and produced a crop, then the non-Christians appeared. So the servants of Jesus came to him and said, Jesus, did you not sow Christians in your world? How then does it have non-Christians? And he said to them, the devil has done this. And the servants said to Jesus, do you want us to go up and gather up the non-Christians? But Jesus said, no, lest while you gather up the non-Christians, you'll uproot the Christians with them. Let both grow together until the end of time. And at the end of time, I will say to my angels, first gather together the non-Christians, bind them in bundles and burn them. What's that sound like? But gather my wheat into my barn. Heaven. So just to take a little bit of mud out of the water, I'm going to begin reading now in verse 40. Remember, back in the house, Jesus broke the code, right? He gave them the answer key, and we stopped reading in verse 39. Listen to what Jesus continues to say to the 12 disciples in the house. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into a furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine forth as the son of their kingdom and their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now there are two statements, one in the form of a question that I believe we need to talk about this morning from that. Whenever I read once again the story as told in the middle of the day in verse 24, and we inserted the answer key, two thoughts came to mind. Number one, how could you tell the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, the wheat and the tare? Only one way. It was the fruit. The wheat had a seed head. The tare had nothing. Now, there's two sides of this coin that I believe Jesus consistently shares throughout the Gospels. And I want you to know, one side is this. I believe, according to the Bible, whenever somebody makes an authentic commitment to Christ, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes to live within us to be our guide. Suddenly, there was a time in my life, after I authentically embraced Christ at age 24, that I had a little thump in my heart whenever I was being tempted, and I knew I had an opportunity to do wrong, and God was trying to say, son, don't do that. I still gave in far too many times, and I still do today. But he's our guide. I'm far from perfect, and we all are, and we'll never be perfect with this stuff. All of a sudden, he, was, he, was, he had this thump in my heart whenever I had done something wrong, and he said, you need to make this right. Sometimes with other people, always with him. And it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes it doesn't feel beautiful, but God loves to bring up sin because he loves to forgive. And so I want you to understand that I believe that once somebody makes a full-on surrender to Jesus, there will be fruit in their life because we have this new guide in our life. That fruit could be sharing Jesus with other people. That fruit could be, you know, the, the fruits of the Spirit we often talk about, uh, from temperament to all those sorts of things but we'll have fruit. We won't be perfect in that, but we will have fruit. There's no doubt about it. But here's the flip side of that coin. Jesus wants people to understand that our fruit will never be what gets us to heaven. It'll never be our works. It is solely based upon the fact that we realize that no matter how hard we try, we are sinners. 
And what I would view as the least of my sin is so drastically different from the cleanliness of God. He's God. How else would he be? He's so incredibly pure. Sin separates us from him, let alone the stuff that I would view as the more wicked stuff. Even the least of my sin separates. We've got to have a big deal to be able to get to God and be, be forgiven. It's got to be something he provides on his terms because we don't have the strength in our own life. And so I believe there are many good-hearted people in our nation today that are church members, and they have a baptismal certificate, and they have other documents that show that they've, they've done some good things. But that's what they're writing on. It's so hard humanistically for us to really comprehend as a human being in our human minds, really, we get heaven? We get unconditional love from a God? God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, even with still the filth that can cross my mind, he still loves me. And some way, somehow, it makes sense humanistically. There must be some things we've got to add on. And many people forget about the simplicity of the gospel and embracing Jesus, and they're checking some box pretty hard. But it'll never be about being a Methodist or a Catholic or a Baptist or a non-denominational or anything else. It'll never be about being baptized. Nothing wrong with those things. It'll never be about helping the little ladies across the street. We should. I think that's a good thing. But our fruit won't get the job done. I think it's evidence that we have a relationship with Christ. Every Christian should have fruit in their life. Jesus is clearly saying, and I'm telling the church in North America, over the last several decades, we need to hear this. A lot of people, hey, are you a Christian? Yes. And what causes that? Well, my, my dad was this, or my mom was that, my grandparents. I try to do good things. I'm proud of those folks who want to do good things. But Jesus is saying, don't unintentionally, accidentally be a lookalike. Do you really have what it takes to be accepted by God's terms? And it's an authentic, full-on relationship with Jesus. We'll talk about that more here in just a moment. So the other thing that I want to mention to you, though, is this. Remember the part of the story where the, where the servants of Jesus came to him and said, didn't you sow Christians in your world? How then does it have non-Christians? And Jesus said, the devil has done this. And they said, do you want us to go and pull up the non-Christians now? And Jesus said, no, lest while you pull up the non-Christians... Or, yeah, pull up the non-Christians, you'll uproot some of the Christians with them. What does that mean? I'm convinced from God's Word, from the Bible, that once we make an authentic, authentic commitment to Christ, nothing can remove us from His hands. In John 10, Jesus says, No one, can snatch, no one or nothing can snatch you out of my hands. My Father who sent me, who is greater than all, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hands. Later he says, I and my Father are one. I'm telling you, the Bible consistently teaches that our going to heaven, once we make a relationship with Jesus, is not based upon our goodness, but it's based upon how good he is for us, and he will never let us go. Should have dropped me a hundred times, but he won't do it. So what does it mean? It almost sounds like the Christians can be uprooted, that we can lose this. Well, here's what it means. To be able to interpret the cloudy by the clear, to be able to interpret uh, you know, the consistency of Scripture, the, the, uh, the uprooting that it's talking about here is an emotional uprooting. Here's what I mean by that. If God changed his mind, he's not going to. And he said, this Tuesday, I'm going to go ahead and send the angels in, and we're going to have the non-Christians, the lookalikes, pulled out. I believe that it would surprise us possibly of the amount of people that may be good-hearted people that were writing religion but not writing Jesus. And I'm telling you, 
I believe it would bring so much doubt into people's mind. They were not real, they were not real. I mean, I believe it could do this. And I've lived in seasons of my life where I was going, am I saved or am I lost? Am I saved or am I lost? Am I saved or am I It's a miserable place to be. And how in the world are we ever going to effectively share Jesus with others if we don't even know we got it ourselves? It's an emotional uprooting. Wheat is a very unique crop. It's a fibrous root. I've had several farmers tell me, if you pull a weed too close to, a, to wheat, what happens is just a few of those fibers pull with it. The wheat doesn't pull. The whole crop doesn't go away. But what happens is a part of that seed head, and obviously the seed head was already on whenever this is told because they could tell that there were tares among them. So whenever those fibers pull, a part of that seed head that was dependent upon those fibers of that root to get sustenance and, and, and nutrition, they die. Not the whole seed head. But it hinders our ability for fruit because there would be such an emotional stir. And we're human beings, aren't we? I'm, I'm telling you, I can put on a pretty good front, but there's days I walk into this building with a lot of doubt in my mind. Not doubting Jesus, just doubting circumstances. I walk in this building sometimes with so much fear about some things in my future. I'm telling you, I, I wish I could tell you that I was a guy that just never, woohoo, it's always Jesus. But I'm telling you, we're just a bunch of busted up people that God just keeps patching back together because he'll never drop us and he'll never let us go. And it can damage our ability to bear fruit. You can't be uprooted. Scripture's clear on that. Now there's two or three characteristics of a possible tear that I'm going to share in the 1050. We just don't have time to do it in the 930, but I will do that in the 1050. It won't take anything away from the truth of this message, but I want to skip on to respect the Lord's time and your time this morning to the end of this message, okay? Listen to what it says now. I want to, I want to draw your attention to verse 44. Verse 44, now remember, we're back in the house. It's the 12 disciples and Jesus. He gave them the answer key. He also said the verses, what we read, verses 40 through 43. But in verse 44, with those 12 disciples, he shares yet another parable of the hidden treasure. In verses 45 and 46, the parable of the pearl of good, good, uh, great price. In verses 47 and following, the pearl of the dragnet. But in verse 51, listen to what it says. Jesus said to them, now I want to ask you a question, them, is that singular or plural? It's plural. Them. He was talking to the twelve. So Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, They, is that singular or plural? It's plural. The twelve disciples, they said to him, Yes, Lord. So Jesus looked at those twelve men and said, Guys, did you get it? Did you get it? And they, the twelve, said, Jesus, got it. We got it. You know who one of the twelve was that was going, yes, I got it. His name was Judas, and he didn't have a clue. Guys, I'm telling you, it's a hard thing, humanistically, to get past works. Surely there are these balancing scales in heaven. And if you've done enough good stuff, it'll tip to the right side, and you'll say, come on into heaven. If you've done too much bad stuff, it'll tip to the wrong side. Sorry, you've got to go to hell. But Jesus is saying, whatever you do, maybe even from a good heart, don't be a Christian lookalike. It's a full-on surrender. How do we make that surrender? Any man, woman, boy, or girl, right now, even right now, if they realize these things, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God has a plan and a purpose for you. 
a plan and a purpose for me. He wants us in heaven worse than we want to get there. He sent the rescuer, Jesus. He's in your corner. He's on your side. We don't have to sweat that part. He's not a superpower that's a million miles away off in heaven somewhere waiting for somebody to mess up so he can punish them. He wants you in heaven. There's a judgment side of God. There's no doubt about it, but I'm telling you, the most true definition of God is he's head over heels in love with you and he's head over heels in love with me and there are days I cannot love me, but he still loves me because he's God. He's perfect. That's good news. With the bad news, or with the good news comes some bad news. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Say all. Every one of us. Sin separates us from God. He's so clean, so holy, so perfect, so pure. How else would he be? He's God. He can't even hang out with sin. He can't even allow sin to come into his presence. We are separated. So in our strength, as much as God says, I want you in heaven, we have to go to hell. We don't have a choice as human beings in our strength. We can't even take a baby step toward God. Can't get Baptist enough, Methodist enough, Presbyterian enough, whatever enough. We can't do it. So we're stuck. And that's our first step to realize we're hopeless. We need to be rescued. And God sent the rescuer, didn't he? Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. And if any man, woman, boy, or girl comes before God and says, I'm stuck, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. I need to be rescued. God, I believe you sent the rescuer, your son Jesus. Get this, he was born of a virgin. He walked this earth for, 24, or for 36, uh, 33 years, I'll get there. 100% God, yet 100% man. Now, I, those were two hurdles that I had a little bit of difficulty clearing as a 24-year-old guy. I'd walked an aisle of a church, a great church with great pastors, much like this church at age 6 and was baptized. I did it again at age 11 and was baptized. But I'm telling you, it was age 24 before I realized that Jesus had to be more to me than a bunch of facts that were crammed into my brain. Facts they were, but I never embraced him relationally. And it comes to a point in our life that we say, okay, I am stuck. I need to be rescued. But I had to, I had to clear the hurdle of how does a virgin have a baby? I was 24 years old. That doesn't make sense. How do you have 100% God yet 100% man at the same time? That just, that, I couldn't wrap my mind around that. But I had, had to ask two fundamental questions. Question number one, do I believe there's a God and I always have? And question number two, can God do anything? And if he cannot do anything, he's not God. And if I could figure him out, he wouldn't be much of a God, I'll assure you. So I realized I didn't have to throw my intellect out the window to become a follower of Jesus. There's more intellectual evidence. I wish we had time to talk about the manuscript evidence and the unity. And I wish we had time to talk about the prophecy fulfilled evidence and all that kind of stuff. It's overwhelming. But there are still a couple of components we must accept by faith. He's God, we're not. I believe in the virgin birth because he's God and I'm not. I believe that he was 100% God, yet 100% man for 33 years because he's God and I'm not. By the way, what better way could Jesus prove to us that he gets us than to become us for 33 years? The Bible says in all ways like we are tempted, he was tempted. Whenever you cry, he gets it. Whenever you're tempted, he didn't give in, but he gets the difficulty of it. He knows us. He died on a cross and rose from the dead because he's God. He can do anything. And because he's God and he can do anything, 
He can forgive you and forgive me of everything. He's just that huge. Nothing he can't forgive. But it comes down to this. Any person coming before him and saying, God, I'm stuck. Need to be rescued. Jesus, you rescued me. And I want to ask you to forgive me of everything. I surrender. I repent. I'm not just jumping through a spiritual hoop here. Not just checking off a box. This is you and me one-on-one. I repent and surrender to you. I know something about me. I know something about you. I'll fall short still. But you'll never fall short. And I don't trust my strength to get me to heaven for one more second. But I trust your strength to get me to heaven even when I blow it. I do a full-on surrender to you. I don't want you, Jesus, just to be the God of my pastor, my priest, my church, my grandma. I want you to be my God. I surrender. Whenever that happens, we know. Many good people, unintentionally, they're being lookalikes. I didn't walk into a church building. Most of the time, I still walked into one for 17 years. Not one week did I say, I'm going to pull the wool over their eyes another week. I thought I had it. I just didn't understand. It wasn't about a religion. It wasn't about a a club. It wasn't about a baptism certificate. None of those things are wrong or bad. But it's always about Jesus. And you can start that relationship. You might be watching online. You might be at the Gerald campus. You might be right here in this room right now. You can be accepted by him on his terms by starting a relationship, just communicating to him those things. God, I'm stuck, helpless, hopeless. Jesus, you're my only way. Forgive me of everything. Wash me clean. I want you to be my God. I want to encourage you, if you do that today, if you have questions about that, call our church campus. Get to somebody. If you're online watching this, call the campus. Let us know what's going on. Why? Because we want to be able to pray with you, welcome you into the family of God. Whether you've ever become a part of this body of Christ or not, this local church, that you go wherever God has you go. But we want to encourage you and affirm you and help you with that walk along the way like so many are helping me with my walk today. Let's pray together. Father, again, we just say thank you for being so faithful. And God, thank you for making the gospel clear. And thank you, God, for loving us so much that you're even concerned about us missing it. And maybe because it's so, so simple. And I can fly right by it, still thinking that some way, somehow, it's just too good to be true. But God, it is true. And if you would have left it with any any stipulation placed on it, somebody somewhere would have been left out. So you said, I'll do it all. Just trust me. Trust me. And even those that don't ever get to the precious point of understanding in life, maybe special needs, whatever it may be, you even have them covered according to your word. But for those of us that have the ability to know right from wrong, and we have the ability to trust you. Help us today to make this commitment. We love you, and again, we'll be careful to give you the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you all to stand to your feet. We're going to have a time of invitation this morning. Here's what I want to ask you to do. If you're here, if you're at the Gerald campus, you can do the same thing. There will be people there to meet you. If you're here, I want to encourage you. 
If you're saying, I'm not 100% sure that if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. I'm not 100% sure that, if, that I really have this relationship going on with Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to take some guts. I'm going to ask you to make your way down one of these aisles and just take a seat on one of these front pews. You don't have to stand up or anything. Just take a seat on one of these front pews. Someone will approach you. They're going to be sitting close enough to you that they'll wear a mask, okay? But I want you to know somebody will approach you and sit down with you and just in a few minutes' time walk you through those precious truths in God's Word of how you can know that you know. You may say, okay, I understand that, and I've already done that. You're covered. You may say, okay, I need to do that now. But I want to encourage you to do that. Also, we already have the number up on the screen. If you're listening by live stream and you're saying, man, I just, I'm not sure I need to talk to somebody, call this number, text this number. If you call the number, if you call the number, you'll get a voicemail. We're here but your voicemail will come through us in the form of a text, and several of us, a handful on the staff, will get that, and we'll get back with you today. So do that. Use that. Utilize that number. You might be in the room saying, I just don't want to come forward. Utilize the number. We'll talk to you later on. But as this worship team leads us just for a short time, if you need to come right now, you come. You come. Lord, I Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. the invitation never ends does it you might want to catch somebody at the door you might want to use this number and text call the church office this week whatever it takes but I, I want to encourage you you'll be among friends there'll be a friend on the other end of that phone or face to face whatever it may be hey one quick announcement and that is I got a uh, text some of us did this morning from our director of missions Jim Plymail and several churches from this area are getting ready to go to Louisiana and help those folks that have been in the path of uh, Hurricane Laura and if you'd like to do that there's no training involved uh, there, that your, your transportation will be provided. So you can either call the associational office, get a hold of Jim Plymail, or if you say, well, where is that and how I get that number, uh, just call the church office and, and we will uh, pass you on to them. We don't know all the details yet, but we'll pass you on to the one that does know all the details, okay? God bless you all. We're going to sing our way out of here. Have a great day.